Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. We're recording this pretty late. It's half past 11 at night, but... I, don't know, I, have a, I have a good idea for this this week's conversation topic, Excellent. so I'm looking forward to this. Good. I feel like the vibe at night is just a different sort of, it's a qualitatively different kind of vibe nice. than in the daytime. <laughs> Where I did feel you like, get that? I feel like that's the sort of thing you would say. <laughs> I d- have, I, have I ever said that kind of thing exact, precisely to you? I, d- I don't think you have. But I've, I've used the word, I've, I've used the term qualitatively different I mean, <laughs> quite I've, a few times recently. I've used it myself many a time in my life. Oh, okay, nice. <laughs> Uh, so a couple of bits of uh, housekeeping before we start. All right, Sam Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you who don't know, that's how <laughs> Sam Harris starts his podcasts. Uh, we had an interesting email. Let me just open up my email. Okay, we're, before we go into that, we should tell the listeners a very, very important thing. What's that? Very important announcement that this podcast is brought to you by Skillshare. Nice. It's Skillshare, isn't it? I think it's Skillshare. I think it's Skillshare for the week. Um, Skillshare is a fantastic online community. It's a platform that has thousands and thousands of online classes for all sorts of things like video editing and graphic design, and illustration, and even cooking. Um, you can sign up to a free two-month trial by going to Skillshare.com slash not overthinking. And while you're there, I've got like 12 plus, 12 plus hours worth of content on Skillshare. Do you know what I've got, Tamor? Have, have you heard this spiel enough times? Right. You have a how to make videos. Course. I have a how to make videos course. Very good. You have a how to study for exams yep. course. Two more. You have a Anki course. Yes. And what were your other? The one that's on the be? featured list. No, 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 that's the exam ones. And and the fourth one is a a more recent edition. I thought the Anki was the most recent. Nah, mate, you're way behind the times. Got a fourth one. What in fact, that? we did a whole podcast episode about that. Episode fifty three for those. Oh, of you. productivity. Productivity. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So I've got like 12 plus hours worth of content on Skillshare. You should check it out. Skillshare.com slash not overthinking. And while you're there, you can watch thousands of other online classes as well on all sorts of really cool stuff. So thank you, Skillshare, for sponsoring this episode. Thank you very much to Skillshare. Right. So the uh, the email that one of our listeners sent in. Yes. Is, is, is this another hate mail? It's not a hate mail. I okay. think it's I think it's an astute observation. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Is it Tame was really funny and Ali's just <laughs> Uh no, not quite. It's it's, it's not one of those. <laughs> there are loads of those. <laughs> no, so this is the title of this email is Ali and Pop Culture References. And uh and the observation that this listener has made, uh, I don't know the name, it's just AA is what, is what the name is. Uh they say that one thing I've noticed when listening to the pod uh and this may be something for Tamor to prod Ali on, is oftentimes when there is a pop culture reference which Ali is unaware of, it seems that he makes it a point to demonstrate his unawareness. Um, and he gives some examples, like Meryl Street came up, Muhammad Ali came up on the podcast, and the listener is asking, is this just Ali genuinely not understanding a particular reference, or is it him exaggerating his actual level of unawareness uh, to signal some sort of superiority that he is too too above such trivial Ooh, things interesting and so what okay so I, I think there's there's actually two different things uh that happen the first is you trolling when you pretend not to know something that you do know 
Yep. Um, and I feel like I don't, I don't do a lot of that. I think it's a fairly regular occurrence. Really? Well, trolling when... when I, Just like trolling about some pop culture thing. Like if someone comes up, you know, if like Michael Phelps or something comes up, then be like, oh yeah, he's that uh, runner, isn't he? <laughs> you know. Yeah, but that's like clearly... Yeah, clearly yeah, yeah. So I think, okay, I think so that's part clear of trolling. Okay. So I think there's there's clear trolling. Yeah. And I think partly what this listener is referring to mm. is actually just clear trolling. Uh, okay. But I think you also you do also take a strange amount of pride in not knowing other references. Um, and I have felt that you kind of exaggerate that a little bit. Uh, or like, or like you, you seem to be trying to signal something or like trying to make this part of your brand or something that you're kind of clueless about what's going on in the real world or something like that. What do you think? Um, I think that's fair to say. I think my stance on these things is that if there is a, co- a popular culture reference that I don't get, I am, A, I want, I want to understand the reference because just ignorance in general is just not a good thing. So like, okay. I, I want to understand the reference and I'm totally okay with, with, with owning up to the fact that I didn't get the reference. Like, for example, if I were in a, a medical lecture and they, are, and they say something and I, and I don't understand it, I'm totally okay with putting my hand up and being like, sorry, what okay. does that mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's mostly a case of wanting to understand it, but there, there is also you know, the hidden agenda that we talked about in the last week's episode where I don't mind at all. And in fact, I probably take pride in the fact that I'm okay to be seen as the guy who doesn't know this, this, this ah, medical okay. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also that I'm, I'm t- totally okay with being seen as the guy who's like, what's NSYNC? Right. For example, because often it leads to then an interesting conversation. Like, oh my god, you don't know what NSYNC? No, you know, I I thought music was haram back in the day. The only music I listened to was on hot radio when driving in my friend's mum's car. So I right. freaking love to take that. You know, it's it's that sort of aspect of the brand. But I think mostly it's a fact. It's it's a case of wanting to understand the reference and being okay with owning up to not knowing stuff. Okay, that's fair. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that the, the listener caught on to it. Yeah, man, a yeah. observation AA. But I, th- I think you do enjoy the like, oh my God, you don't know this. You, you love it. You love it when someone gives you that response. <gasps> yeah, it's, it makes for a more interesting conversation. I, I, I enjoy having the piss taken out of me. Okay. Especially when it comes to things that I really do not give a toss about. <laughs> like, uh, you, know, you know, like, oh my God, Ali, you, you can't cook for yourself? It's like, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, 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 that sort of thing. Okay, cool. Nice. I think that's a vibe. Um, yeah, I thought that was a good observation from the listener. Nice one. Thank you, listener. Uh, seems like there's a bit of signaling and a bit of genuine wanting to find things out. Yeah, genuine ignorance. <laughs> genuine ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, is there any other housekeeping before we get down to it? I mean, skillshare.com slash not overthinking. I think people, everyone should visit that. And if you haven't visited that, then, you know, what are you, what are you doing, guys? Oh, other, other housekeeping. You're desperate to hit 10,000 subscribers, uh, followers on, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's so hard. So on last week's episode... I begged all the all the listeners to follow me. I think that probably increased my following count by probably like just under a thousand or something. Really, a thousand people followed you off of the podcast episode last week. I think so, like just under a thousand, but like roughly. Pretty good. And then you posted it on your story today, and that got like a few hundred, maybe like five, five or six hundred or something. But it's just really hard. Like, <laughs> so, so, so you're saying I'm less popular than the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe people listen to what you're saying on your Instagram stories less than they listen to what we're saying. on the Okay, thank you. That's very kind. Um, yeah, but man, getting Instagram followers is, is no easy feat. So uh, everyone go to refrigerated. And I'll have you know that is a non-trivial spelling. It's <laughs> <laughs> refrigerated without the D. <laughs> no, there's a D on the end, not in the middle. Oh, yeah. All right. Anyway, we shouldn't dwell on this. This is a waste of time. What are we actually talking uh, about today? Okay, so the thing... So let me, let me tell you a story. Uh, 
I, so this is this is something I wanted to bring up in last week's episode. And then you were like, no, 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 save it for the next episode because we already have like an insight this week or something. All right. So this insight, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but in the past couple of weeks, I think back to uh, a statistics class that I had when I was like 15 or something. In year 10, we did GCSE statistics at school, right? And part of uh, doing, uh, part of part of the course was to learn about Learn about like surveying people, right? You know, if you want to like survey a group of people, um, what's like the best way to go around that? Um, and in particular, we learned about different ways that you can sample a population. So if you want to find out, you know, which which way is the England going to vote in the next election, you have all these pollsters who will sample, you know, who, who will have little surveys that they do in the general public to try and get an accurate picture of which way uh you know, which way the election is going to go, right? Uh, and one of the sampling methods that we learned uh, is called stratified sampling. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. Do you, know, what's, uh, do, you, do you want to explain stratified sampling? Sure. So I think before explaining stratified sampling, it's worth explaining what random sampling is, which is where you have the population and you pick, let's say, a thousand people at random, completely random from the population. Um, that might be a reasonable way of going about it. But an alternative way is stratified sampling where you split the population into different strata by whatever metric you want. So for example, let's say you split it up by age. Now let's say you happen to be living in an aging population like the UK or like Japan, uh, as your YouTube video famously, famously <laughs> described. We'll link that in the show notes. Uh, this for, for, for context, this is when Tamer was 12 or 13 years old. He was giving a class presentation about the aging population of Japan and how and 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 I think I think you novelly argued that one of the reasons for the aging population in Japan was something to do with uh, the abundance of love hotels. <laughs> yes, or perhaps the lack of love hotels. I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the argument was, but the listeners should check that out in yeah. the show notes. Anyway, uh, an aging population like the UK or Japan might have a disproportionate number of old people. So you know, maybe let's say hypothetically, eighty percent of the population was over the age of sixty. Doing random sampling in that context might not give you an entirely accurate picture of what's going on so you might decide to stratify the population by age group and then sort of based on the numbers of people in each age group you could give them that uh, a proportional number of votes and this is sort of vaguely how some voting systems in the world work where for example in america different states have different number of numbers of votes depending on how many people they have or whatever yeah sure um so yeah stratified sampling is essentially like uh, a way to account for the fact that uh, there are sort of different subgroups within a population, right? Um, and this this stratified sampling thing was an absolute game changer for me. This was the first first thing. time you realized there were groups within society. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. Now, this was the first like this was the first time I had an intuitive understanding of a mathematical concept. So stratified sampling, the sort of underlying you know mental model if you want to call it that or the underlying concept is uh, is the concept of like a weighted average right or a weighted sum where you you sort of adding up a bunch of things and giving uh, a bit more importance to some things than others so for example if there's loads of old people you'll give a bit more importance to uh, which way they're going to vote compared to the young people right uh, and so it's, it's this idea of like a weighted average a weighted sum um, and this was the first time where maths wasn't just uh this sort of numbers on a page thing that we're just manipulating, uh, it actually had a, a sort of a, an intuitive, uh, intuitive wrong word, but it, it had like a meaningful interpretation in real life. Uh, and so the, the idea was that like, you know, the, if you give something a higher weight in this weighted average or weighted sum, then you're, you're, you're kind of giving it more importance. Uh, and this was the first time where 
my my understanding of the thing wasn't that oh we've learned this definition of stratified sampling here's how you do stratified sampling uh i'm going to like regurgitate this in exam my understanding was it, it's weird because i you know I, I feel like when you understand something you actually don't need the definition for it when you understand it you you can conjure the definition based on your understanding of it and so the understanding is that you know yeah it's like this weight weighted by importance or something and from that if they ask you about stratified sampling in the exam you can describe what it is because you understand it uh, and that was the first time that there was this sort of what i'd say like actual understanding of a maths concept for me uh, and that that like completely changed uh, changed the game and changed your life <laughs> changed my life nice um and that kind of got me thinking well we we've talked about this kind of stuff uh, before on the podcast i had this blog post i wrote a while ago about sort of understanding things at different levels of abstraction. Do you remember this, Ali? Different levels of abstraction. I don't specifically remember the thing that you wrote about it, but it's a concept I think about a lot when it comes to teaching medical students and stuff like that. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, I think maybe we've touched on this on the podcast. Uh, But essentially, it was weird because I was thinking about this statistics class last week, and then this week, uh, a fantastic post uh, was published by one of my Twitter mutuals, a guy called Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil he, Qureshi? Sorry? Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, yeah, he's dead. He is dead. Yeah. Uh, he rest in peace. Uh, it, it's a post called How to Understand Things. And this was doing the rounds on Twitter a few days ago. And it was on the front page of Hacker News today. And it still is on the front page of Hacker News. Um, and this is, uh, I'll, I'll kind of, there's a few sections to the post. I'll kind of uh, talk about each of the main points. And then maybe we can. Great. Explain it. We can think about it. Uh so the, f- the first point is really interesting. Matt, this is a real cracker of a post. We'll, we'll post a link. Uh, you should definitely follow this guy on Twitter. I'll, I'll, I'll link to his, uh, his profile as well. Uh, Nabil says, The smartest person I've ever known had a habit that, as a teenager, I found striking. After he'd prove a theorem or solve a problem, he'd go back and continue thinking about the problem and try to figure out different proofs of the same thing. Sometimes he'd spend hours on a problem he'd already solved. I had the opposite tendency. As soon as I'd reached the end of the proof, I'd stop since I'd gotten the answer. Um, and uh, Nabil builds up to a very interesting point, which is that this thing that we call intelligence is as much about things like honesty and integrity and bravery as it is about raw intellect. And so you're, you're a big fan of like talking about intelligence or whatever, and you're big on the whole like IQ thing. Yeah. And in discussions about intelligence, we, we almost always equate it to something like IQ where it's like something you can test in, in this particular way. What Nabil is saying is that one thing that he's found in, in people who he, he thinks are you know, smart and intelligent or whatever is, in his words, they aren't willing to accept answers that they don't understand. Uh, and So he's saying that if you don't get a popular culture reference, then you flag that up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, no, he's saying that people who he, he thinks are smart and intelligent tend not to uh, sort of accept things until they completely understand them and completely understanding it is often a case of kind of banging your head against something in many different ways until it really actually clicks uh, and what he, and and he's, he's saying that this is actually a software trait rather than a hardware trait it's not like you know the the sort of iq uh, definition of intelligence is more of like a hardware thing that's trying to test of like how fast can this person think how much stuff can they memorize this kind of stuff it's like you know it's trying to get at this idea of some, uh, you know, hardwired thing called intelligence. What Nabil is saying is that, sure, that's part of it, but a big part of it is also just your kind of intellectual integrity and honesty and bravery when it comes to 
facing concepts you don't understand. And so, and, and this is like a learnable trait. Every one of us can, you know, you know, if, if we don't understand something, we can keep banging our head against the same problem until we actually understand it, regardless of like what your IQ may be or whatever. Um, and he's saying that, uh, yeah, intelligence is not fixed, uh, despite what many people try and claim nowadays, I think. Uh, so that was his first point. I think that's pretty interesting. And this is, um, th- this is another thing. It's so weird when you come across a post like this that just like touches on loads of things that you've been thinking about recently. The other thing I was thinking about recently, I think I had a, a Twitter draft of this, uh, is a tweet draft sitting around, which is that I, I found that my, my maths friends, my friends who studied maths seem to have a much higher bar for when they will claim to have understood something than everyone else. Um, and so for example, yeah, I, I ran into this at university. Uh, I think at university, at the start of university, I had a very low bar for when I when I think I understood something because actually during most of school, I don't think I understood anything really. Um, and there'd be there'd be a bunch of occasions in first year where we'd be like talking, we'd be like studying something, and yeah, there'd be like a group of us studying together, or whatever. And someone would say like, "Hey, do you do you get this thing?" And I'd confidently be like, yeah, yeah, I get this thing. It's like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then they'd ask like a follow-up question and be like, hmm, I guess I, I, guess I don't get this thing. <laughs> and I found, I mean, even recently, so this was an interesting experiment. So I was trying to learn a new thing recently. A couple of weeks ago, I was trying to teach myself about accounting uh, and the different kind of principles in accounting and stuff like that. And I have some friends who uh, have studied a bit of accounting, maybe as part of their degree or part of their job or whatever. And so I was trying to like really get to the bottom of some accounting concepts. And I asked about, I asked a bunch of people like, Hey, do you, do you, do you understand what the point of a cash flow statement is or whatever? And I got the impression that a lot of them gave the answer I would have given in first year of university of like, yeah, I understand what it is. And then, yeah, they can sort of recite the definition or something. Um, but then when you kind of drill down into it of like, okay, why is that the case? Like, you know, what motivates this definition? Then it's just not really there. And so that was something I'm thinking about, which is that like, it, it feels like different subjects lend themselves to kind of understanding things in different ways. And all right, I'm, I'm going off on a personal tangent here. We will get back to the post, but this is all, it's all like the same, it's all the same idea really. Um, but I, yeah, one one of the frustrations I had at school was that it didn't feel like we could ever really understand most of what we were learning, right? So for example, in biology or something, they'll tell you that, oh, this is how a cell works and it has this thing and the, it has the chlorophyll to do the photosynthesis to eat the air, eat the sunlight <laughs> kind of thing. Yep. <laughs> they tell you something like that. And there wasn't really... I, it didn't feel like, you know, you basically just had to take their word for it. You kind of had to accept, okay, I guess the chlorophylls do uh, eat the sunlight, right? You basically had to accept that. If you if you asked a follow-up question of like, oh, why or how or whatever, uh, you probably wouldn't get an answer. A, because it's, it's not on like the syllabus or whatever. And B, I suspect you just do require like a ton of groundwork before you can actually get the true real answer for how these things work. And my impression was that this was the case in biology for sure. I didn't study, I, I dropped chemistry after GCSE. I didn't study at A-level, but I got the I, I got the impression that in A-level chemistry, they basically told you to forget every all the other chemistry you've learned and start over from a new set of rules or something like that. And so like, if you're at a GCSE level, you know, if you're like 16 learning chemistry and you're learning about something and you start asking questions about like, you know, 
why does this work that way? How does this actually work? You actually can't get to a reasonable answer. Like you, you haven't learned the stuff that would get you an actual answer to that question. And so th- there's, there's no deeper level of understanding to be had. You've, you've just got to accept these things as like surface level claims and you rattle them off an exam. And that's the subject until A-level maybe or university maybe. And so it felt like, yeah, I, I think I very quickly got to the point where I was like, okay, we're not really going to understand any of this stuff. And that's just how it's got to be. Uh, I think maths was slightly different in that most of the stuff you learn in secondary school maths, you can actually completely understand from the ground up. Like it doesn't require sort of massive amounts of foundation to understand um, you know, how, how this concept works. Uh, and so I think that's, that's partly why I like maths. Um, but yeah, I think, all right, I'm going to stop talking for a second. Do you have any thoughts? I have lots more to say on this. <laughs> uh, no, I have, I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Please continue. <laughs> okay, great. I'm enjoying myself here. <laughs> okay, so I basically went through the whole of school not really ever having understood anything. I think I was pretty good at, you know, reciting and recalling facts and, you know, uh, rattling out different methods that we learned for different circumstances. I was pretty good at doing that. But I don't think I really actually understood much. Uh, this statistics thing, stratified sampling, I did understand that was great. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I didn't really understand anything. And so when I got to university uh, in first year, I basically had the same mindset that I had in school, where I thought if you understand something, it means that you can sort of recall the definition or whatever, and maybe like manipulate some symbols on a page to like solve a maths equation or something. Uh, that, that was my idea of what it means to understand something. And so I went through most of first year kind of thinking... Uh, yeah, this sort of makes sense. Kind of weird, kind of weird, but it sort of makes sense. Um, and I feel like about half of the year group was in the same bucket as me. They they had this idea of like, you know, this is what it means to understand something. And this is kind of the level we're playing at. But the other half were, were like definitely in a completely different league. They were just playing a different ball game. And I realized this when it came to revising for first year exams. Uh, I was revising with one of my friends and we were tr- he was trying to help me understand the proof for a particular theorem in maths. It's called the, in our lecture notes, it was called the scenic viewpoint theorem. Uh, it's uh, it's oh, part, the old SVT. The old SVT. Uh, the, it, it's sort of like the main part of the proof of another theorem called the bolzano weierstrass theorem, which is like a really, uh, you know, every like first year maths person learns this thing, right? Um, and so we were trying to, he was trying to help me understand this thing. And for the life of me, I just, yeah, I just couldn't quite get my head around it. I, I kept getting sort of lost in like the maths notation and getting confused by things. At one point he asked me, okay, so when you think about this thing, like what's, what's the picture you have in your head when you think about this thing? And I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? What are you talking about picture? <laughs> <laughs> I've got some letters and numbers in my head. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I didn't have any picture in my head for this thing. I didn't have any picture in my head for any of that stuff. Um, but it turned out that after he drew like a few squiggles on the board, like a really simple picture, that that picture encapsulated basically what the theor- what the whole point of the theorem was. And if you could remember that picture, you could derive the proof really easily just in your head in the same way that if you understood at its core what like a weighted sum is or what stratified sampling is, you could then derive the definition in an exam when you needed to do it. And this idea of like having sort of pictures in your head to explain concepts this was like an absolute game changer. Like <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> like this guy had pictures of his head all along <laughs> and no one had told me. 
I, and part of me was like, whoa, this is seriously worrying <laughs> because we have exams coming up and I don't understand anything. It was also worrying because I thought I understood it. I actually, until that point, I did not know what it felt like to understand a concept. And I suspect most people go through their entire education without actually getting to that point. I think I was fortunate that I got to that point because like my friend kind of helped me get there and I was studying maths where like it's quite important to get there. I feel like you can go an awful long time without actually getting there. The other frustrating thing was that it felt like someone should have told me this. <laughs> someone should have sat me down when I was like 12 or something, or if not that, 16, if not that at the start of university saying, right, this is what it means to learn something and understand something, right? If you can do this, that means you sort of understand a concept. No one really did that. Uh, and that feels kind of important. Okay. I, I have a few thoughts now. Um, the first one is just just on that point. If, if I were talking to you sort of halfway through first year, yeah, and I were for you know we were doing that Feynman technique of explain it to a friend, explain it to a five year old. Yeah, would you have been able to explain stuff to a five year old? No, probably not. Okay, and then after understanding the picture thing, would you have then been able to? Yeah. Okay, because I feel like that is like that for me has always been the litmus test ever since I first discovered this in second year when we actually had a lecture about learning techniques and I would and I had a similar experience like whoa why has no one ever told me this before oh really yeah. um, which kind of is what sparked my whole interest in psychology and the psychology of learning which ultimately sparked the YouTube channel and all, all of that sort of stuff right. so I had to kind of put that in there um, a f t two things come to mind of similar experiences I had the first was uh, the quadratic equation formula yeah you know minus b plus or minus square b squared minus 4 is all over 2a yep is that, is that right yeah I think that's right nice um, and initially I came across it because sort of, uh, you know, back when we were in year six, we were doing sort of like slightly high level maths and a, the, the quadratic equation had come up and there, were, there was this formula for solving any quadratic equation. Yeah, sure. um, but when I was in year eight, I remember first coming across the proof of that. And it wasn't sort of in a, it wasn't as, it, it wasn't in a, this is the proof kind of thing. It was, we were doing this thing, this, this thing, these sort of maths worksheets that we, were, we used to do called Kumon back in the day Good time. um absolutely fantastic times and they had sort of the, the, there's all sorts of different methods for solving quadratic equations there's like making up numbers out of thin air and hoping that they stick and then there's like completing the square and then the third one is this formula and so there were loads of questions on completing the square uh but using real numbers and using algebra and the final question of the worksheet was ax squared plus bx plus c equals zero nice solved <laughs> by completing the square and i was like whoa that, that's epic mind blown <laughs> and then i sort of worked through this and i i, I can't remember you know my, my uh, rose tinted memory likes to think that i i came up with the thing yeah <laughs> uh, but either way when i got when i ultimately got to the quadratic formula my, i i felt like a click in my mind like oh my goodness like this is not just some random ass formula that some dude make up made up this is yeah. this actually makes perfect sense based on all of these principles that we've yeah, learned yeah, before yeah. So that was my first real kind of understanding of it. And then I went up to my math teacher the following day. I was like, hey, you know, we're doing the quadratic formula. Do you mind if I, if I you know, prove it on the, on the board? And he was like, oh, all right. You offered to prove it on the board yeah. in class. Yeah, and I explained it to the class and everyone was like, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. Wow, nice. <laughs> Ten house points for that. <laughs> Ten points to Gryffindor. <laughs> um, the second is, uh, was actually in, in chemistry. So I don't know how much chemistry up to, up to GCSE, but are you familiar with the concept of a mole? I never really understood it, but yeah, I can probably, I knew the definition. At okay, one point. yeah. So uh, th the concept of a mole is one of those things that you you either memorize a definition and a formula or you intuitively understand it. Yeah. Um, and this was something that we started to teach a lot in our BMAT crash courses, is that 
often sort of in, in, in section two of the BMAT, you've got like six or seven chemistry questions. A lot of getting a high score in the BMAT rests on you being able to solve these very, very quickly, which comes from having an intuitive understanding of the chemistry rather than of having to rely on formulae. Yeah. So for example, the sort of relying on formula method of approaching a mole would be like, you know, the question would say you've got one mole of carbon added to whatever, you know, and, and something happens. The the sort of you in first year way of understanding that is thinking, okay, I've got this formula triangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moles equals mass <laughs> over MR. Okay, therefore, if I have one mole of carbon and I'm going to look, I, I know the MR of carbon is 12. So one times 12 is, oh, okay, cool. I've got 12 grams of carbon. Yeah. That is how you think about it. When you have an intuitive understanding of moles, you see one mole of carbon and you think 12 grams because you, you, you just know that that is what a mole is right. and you feel it in your heart. And that was <laughs> a, a thing that we would say on our courses and we'd always get a laugh from the students being like, you know, you, you feel this deep down. Yeah. Um, and I think like that was the other sort of simple example that I, 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 re- I remember experiencing when I first understood moles. And then when I was explaining it to other people that when, once you explain it in the right way, you feel the click in someone else's minds as they then intuitively understand the concept. Yeah. And now everything becomes easier because the, this mole is not a random ass thing. Like what the, what the hell is a mole? It's like, oh, it's 16 grams of oxygen or 12 grams of carbon. Like I get what it is. Um, those are my, my thoughts. Please continue. Nice. Yeah, the mole thing, I never really intuitively understood that uh, in chemistry. I think we had to do a bit of that at GCSE. Never really got it, to be honest. Um, and then, yeah, there was there was a bunch of stuff. Uh, how far did I get? Uh, yes, that's how far I got. Um, so basically, I ex- explained like I'm five. You said you discovered the power of pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the power. So I think the, the explain like I'm five thing is really good. I think the pictures thing is really good separately because a picture is just like a really... Some say worth a thousand words. Yeah, yeah. That's that's basically what I was going to say. I was going to say it's a really efficient representation of something. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah. I think I think part of when you know you kind of intuitively understand something is where you have like a okay. Bear with bear with me here. All right. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and paint a picture that may or may not make sense. <laughs> so, like, when you're learning something, right? You, 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 you're kind of building up this sort of map in your head or whatever. And you have like these, these dots in your head of different like things, different concepts. Some of these dots might start to connect as, as you kind of connect the concepts. Um, but it, it, it feels very heavy. It feels like there's a lot you have to remember. If this whole structure feels very brittle, that like it, it, can, it can break at any moment. And like it's really heavy and you're, you're kind of trying to hold this up. All these definitions, these concepts, how they link together and stuff like that. That's like when you don't understand something but when you do understand something it's almost as if it's almost as if there the structure actually isn't there it's it, you know i feel i feel like the, the process of understanding something is like building up this sort of this kind of crazy you know thing in your head with like all these parts and it's really heavy and stuff and then at the point where you understand it the thing just vanishes and you can you can just like conjure it up in whatever way or form you want uh as, as you need to. And I, I think it really does feel like that when you really understand something because all the kind of weight and the mental burden of, of trying to store this thing in your head just disappears because it is now just there in your, you know, in your mental models and whatever you want to call it. It's just there somewhere and you can recall it in whatever form you need. Um, so almost like when you're learning a language, you're struggling to remember the stuff, but then once you've, once you've learned the language... It's like, you know, you and I don't have any sort of uh, 
constructs for English grammar anymore. Or right. what, yeah, what, yeah, what does yeah. nominative and accusative and declarative case even mean? Yeah, like, it's, just, it's just not a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you're just doing the talking. Like you, you're not like intentionally conjugating the verb. Okay, run is like this kind of verb, and the rule is like I run, you run, he ran. You know this kind of stuff. Actually, like so, for a friend of mine who are like super good at music see music in this sort of sense where i'm still thinking i i i vaguely understand some musical theory yeah and so if i as, as long as i'm playing the piano in the scale of d i can fairly you know comfortably do stuff with my fingers and like things will be all right yeah um but then you know i i i see some of my friends from university and the stuff that they can do on a piano i'm like how how are you doing that yeah and it it, it they just have such an understanding of it yeah it, it doesn't even matter what keys they're pressing right <laughs> they, yeah they know what's going on <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, it's just like a completely different representation in the head. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that was one thing I wanted to mention that like this this feeling of understanding something, it's weird and, and it seems bizarre, but like when you really understand it, you no longer need to like remember it. You no longer, it no longer takes like w- any work to store this thing in your head. It's like a very specific feeling. Um, um, I think there are, so the, there are certain exceptions to this. I think with a lot of very complicated things, the... Uh, the clarity that you get from finally understanding it is is not necessarily permanent. Sure. So anyone who's done a PhD in maths, for example, will know that sort of three weeks after you submitted it, you probably won't be able to understand your your thesis anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Because you need to have such a a certain representation of like all of the things to even understand what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Equally, so in in medicine, like often with a lot of sort of complex like neurosciency type topics you once you've understood it once you have that moment of clarity and then next week you've, you've forgotten it again but at least now you know what steps you now need to take in order to re-understand it and yeah, you can kind yeah. of talk someone else through those steps yeah yeah i think like one, once you once you once you've like found the this like efficient representation you can you know you'll forget it and stuff but you can rediscover that efficient representation without going through the whole process all over again um so i think yeah i, th- I think that, that's a very like nice feeling uh right Back to back to Nabil's post. By the way, if you want to get some of that nice feeling, go to skillshare.com slash not overthinking. Uh, nice. <laughs> so the first point that Nabil was making was that this, you know, thinking about intelligence as like a fixed thing, which is, you know, related to how fast we think or whatever you want to call it. It's not quite right because a lot of what he's seen in the smartest people that he knows is that their smartness or whatever just comes from making sure they really actually understand something. Uh, and he, he says that, He's actually no- noticed that these hardware traits are very greatly in the smartest people that he knows. Hardware traits like, you know, how, how fast you are thinking and calculating and reading. Uh, he says that some, some of these smartest people are really fast at this stuff. Some are really slow. Um, but the thing that they all have in common is, uh, yeah, the kind of in- intellectual honesty and integrity and bravery to actually make sure they really understand something before moving on. Uh, he moves on to say, Sorry, you about to say something? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've also sort of been thinking about this in the context of sort of these re- these recent books I've been reading about like moral and social psychology and stuff. Yeah. Um, I sort of after listening to the book, I'm like, okay, yeah, I think I understand that. But then I think, could I actually explain this to a five year old? And then I think, no, until unless and until sort of from from memory, I can build the case up from the build the case from the ground up and explain to someone else exactly what the thought process is as to why they should believe that there are six moral taste receptors, for example. Yeah. At that point, I haven't really understood it. And so what I'm doing now is once I read a book, I'm, I'm making sure that I sort of am distilling my thoughts and writing it down and revisiting it at different points just to kind of solidify that in, in my brain. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that's something I try and do as well when I'm learning some new kind of theory style stuff. Uh, oh yeah, there was one point that I mentioned that I wanted to, 
uh, kind of explain a bit more. I think I said that like I found that my maths friends have a higher bar for when they'll claim to have understood something than most other people. Uh, and this might just be me being like biased given that sort of maths is what I'm experienced in and, and that kind of stuff. But I feel like different subjects actually have this sort of quality to different degrees depending on the stage you're at. I feel like, you know, in as a 10-year-old, you can reach, you know, you can reach an actual understanding of various things in the maths curriculum. Whereas I think as a 10-year-old, it's extremely difficult to reach an actual understanding of something on the chemistry curriculum. Do you, is, is that accurate, would you say? Yeah, seems very reasonable. Yeah. And so... Um, but I think actual understanding still depends on how... It, it depends on the layers of abstraction. Right, yeah, yeah. There's, 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 like, there's definitely layers, yeah. And, and this, this is something Nabil mentions, uh, that there's basically infinite layers to this stuff. But I, I, think, it's worth, I think it's worth saying that like, <laughs> there is like not understanding it, and then there, there are layers to understanding it. And for example, actually, yeah, another interesting thing that came out, I think in like second or third year of university, uh, I can't remember exactly how it came up, but I had this moment where I finally understood addition and multiplication <laughs> to a greater degree than Sorry. I ever had before. In your second or third year of university? Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, I can't tell you more. I can't remember the... You the can't time. remember addition and multiplication? <laughs> I can't remember exactly like what the insight was, but, but something came up and I was like, whoa, addition and multiplication is like that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a couple of layers deep in understanding addition and multiplication. I feel like someone who... Uh, you know, it's done like a PhD in number theory or group theory or something like that. It's probably like 10 layers deeper than I am about understanding what the hell addition and multiplication mean. So there's definitely like, okay, that's, I, I think that's another thing about maths is that you, you, you kind of, you just, you're sort of faced with the fact that there are lots and lots of layers to understanding every concept. Uh, and there, there is genuinely like almost an endless amount of depth in almost everything that you learn in maths. And that's, that's almost just by definition. Like the whole field is just people like overthinking stuff and like pushing the field forwards. And so there's just an incredible amount of, of, of actual depth that, into which you can understand stuff. And again, I, I probably don't know enough about the other fields to say this, but I feel like it, it feels like it's not quite the same in other fields. Like you'll hit, you'll hit a wall a lot more quickly of like, you know, what more is there for me to understand here kind of thing. Um, and, and and maybe partly because we actually just don't know some of this stuff. So I imagine in physics, you know, you can ask why a bunch of times and eventually you'll get, you know, pre- pretty soon with a lot of things, you'll get to like, well, we're trying to figure it out. Like, yeah, so like, like, I think there's a graviton that produces gravity. <laughs> math is almost entirely an, an arbitrary abstract field, right? Yeah, yeah. In that it's a, a bunch of usually dudes making up a bunch of things as they go along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then defining... <laughs> those terms as being kind of the things that they discovered. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of other fields, they're trying to get at some some idea of what truth is. Right. And so for physics, you can sort of create the, the theory of, oh, I reckon there's this thing called the graviton. And then you test it against, you know, does this explain various phenomena that we see? Equally in social sciences and, and stuff like, you, you're trying to get at some kind of representation of why people behave the way that they do or yeah. why society is the way that it is, which inherently does not have an infinite layer, infinite number of layers of understanding. Yeah. Although... It probably does have an infinite number of layers of abstraction. Like, for example, you, you can say that you understand the core tenets of human behavior. You understand that people are driven to, towards, I don't know, survival and reproduction. Sure. Which is kind of understanding that at one, at one level, kind of going deeper, you could talk about individuals with society. Going deeper than that, you could talk about 
individual neural neurons in the brain going deeper than that you can talk about the biochemical interaction the different neurons so there's sort of depending on how granular you go you're going to go yeah, yeah, yeah but ultimately i think it would be fair to say for a 10 year old to say i understand that human nature is geared towards survival and reproduction because that's an entirely reasonable thing and you can understand it at that level of abstraction right yeah yeah i agree with that yeah i, I don't want to like draw comparisons between fields and stuff because I, I don't really know enough about anything yeah i thought you were going to say that, that you didn't want to disparage 10 year olds <laughs> that seems like the sort of thing you would say I wasn't disparaging 10-year-olds. You're saying, uh, I feel like uh, um, a 10-year-old doesn't have any understanding of, uh, of anything. <laughs> no. no, I didn't say that. So you said that. Oh, no. science. You said that in context of science. I, I said in the context, I was very particular. I said in the, in, in the context of your school curriculum. Okay. I, I wasn't disparaging. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was disparaging yeah. you there. My apologies. I was disparaging the school curriculum. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <Very thing>. Excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hashtag I, reformed police. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um... Yeah, let's let's move away from making comparisons between fields. Um, but I think it's, it's I think it's worth lots of people studying maths to various degrees, um, just to just to like understand uh, what, like what it means to like really understand a, a concept. Um, all right, back to the post. The bill says this quality of not stopping at an unsatisfactory answer deserves some examination. He thinks one part of this um, not stopping at an unsatisfactory answer is is energy basically he thinks that like thinking hard about something takes a lot of energy a lot of effort uh and it's almost always easier just to like say ah yeah i can i've memorized the definition i'll be fine in the exam you know i kind of understand this it's fine let's move on rather than going down like a million different rabbit holes to try and approach the concept in different ways and kind of build up your model of it um and uh so he, he thinks it's also so easy to think, yeah, yeah, he thinks it's very easy to fall into the trap that you understand something, which is exactly what I was trying to get at. Um, and like figuring out whether you understand it takes a lot of work to kind of test your own understanding. Uh, and this requires a lot of intrinsic motivation because it's quite hard. Uh, and he mentions that the Nobel Prize winner, William Shockley, was fond of talking about the will to think. Uh, and there's a quote from William Shockley here who says, motivation is at least as important as method for the serious thinker. Uh, the essential element for successful work in any field is the will to think. Uh, this was a phrase that he apparently learned from the nuclear physicist Enrico Fermi. Um, in these four words, Shockley wrote, Fermi distilled that distilled the essence of a very significant insight which is that a competent thinker will be reluctant to commit himself to the effort that tedious and precise thinking demands he will lack the will to think unless he has the conviction that something worthwhile will be done with the results of his efforts basically like it's really hard to get to the point where you understand something it's also hard to get to the point where you uh can test whether you understand something and so unless you are really actually motivated to do it you probably won't do it um and yeah, he says that like so there's this thing about like how being intrinsically motivated to want to understand a thing is quite important. Otherwise, it's just not worth the effort. Uh, and you also, to some extent, need to be quite bothered by the feeling of not understanding something. Uh, and maybe some people have a, a natural propensity towards that. Um, but you know, everyone everyone can learn it. Uh, and Nabil then says that this is related to honesty and integrity, uh, a sort of compulsive unwillingness or inability to lie to yourself. Uh, Feynman said that the first rule of science is that you do not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool uh, and it is uniquely easy to lie to yourself because there's no external force keeping you honest only you can ask yourself constantly do I really understand this thing um, and Bill mentions that this is why writing is really important because if you're writing about something it's very hard to fool yourself into thinking you understand it because you'll find that you can't actually put it into words and explain it to yourself um, 
So that was the second part. Any comments to add there? Nope. Writing is good. We like writing. Yep. Uh, in part three, what's this point? Uh, part three basically talks about like uh, how true understanding of something is, is very much related to our physical intuition for what it is. Uh, and just using words to understand something can only go so far. And you typically need to visualize something in terms of like a picture or so, uh, of some sort um, or some kind of imagery. And it makes an interesting point that this is why uh, Jesus spoke in parables throughout the New Testament uh, in ways that actually stick with you rather than just stating abstract principles. Uh, so for example, Jesus uh, in the New Testament says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet none of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, i.e. like, uh, sparrows are like really cheap, but they'll still like fly and stuff unless God wills it otherwise. And that like sticks with you a lot more than just God watches or overall living beings, you know? Um, and apparently Faraday, uh, physicist was really into this kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, visualize, visualizing things and having like physical kind of uh, a physical understanding of abstract things is helpful. Uh, the other thing he mentions, which you're a big fan of is, that a quality that he's noticed in very intelligent people is being unafraid to look stupid. Oh, yes. He's calling me very intelligent. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Apparently Malcolm Gladwell talks about his father in this way. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell's a sort of public intellectual slash author, writer kind of guy. Uh, and apparently Malcolm talks about his father saying, if he doesn't understand something, he just asks you. He doesn't care if he sounds foolish. He will ask the most obvious question without any sort of concern about it. Uh, if my father had met Bernie Madoff, he would never have invested money with him because he would have said, I don't understand a hundred times. I don't know who Bernie Madoff is. No, many reference. Um, <laughs> is that you signaling your ignorance? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look how ignorant I am. <laughs> um, and so yeah, he mentioned that most people are, are actually just not willing to look stupid. Uh, and this takes courage. Um, and this is good. I feel I feel like this is this is something that I've started to experience a lot over the past few years. And uh, Nabil says, it's striking how many situations he's in where he starts asking basic questions and feeling kind of guilty for like slowing the group down. And then it turns out that nobody actually understood what was going on to begin with. Um, but he was the only one who actually sort of spoke up and said something. You're big on this, aren't you? Yeah, mate. This was like my life in med school. Nice. Uh, yeah, this is a habit. It's easy to pick up and it makes you smarter. Uh, Nabil says, I agree with that. Right. The next section is about, it's specifically about how uh, derivatives differentiation is explained to us with this like dy dx notation right uh we won't get too into that okay yeah no so his point here is that uh okay so if you if you study maths uh in you know school at like age 17 or 18 you'll probably learn about a concept called differentiation and you'll probably see some symbols on a page that uh, look a bit like a fraction and the fraction is dy over dx uh, and you'll be told that this is a derivative and you can apply this to like a function to differentiate it and things like this. You'll be told that. Um, and then you'll learn about something called the chain rule, which is a way to differentiate certain kinds of functions. And uh, you might learn uh, what you'll be told is a proof of the chain rule, uh, where you, like, we won't get into it. It's not that important. Essentially, most, you know, most people at like age 17 or 18 are taught a proof of the chain rule, which isn't really a proof it's manipulating some symbols in a way that happens to work out nicely. It's, it's not really that legit. Unfortunately, it takes a while to like properly rigorously pr prove this thing. And that like time is not something that you have during the school curriculum because you have to like learn this method and move on to the next thing. And so even if you see this proof of the chain rule and you're like, hmm, this is pretty weird. 
these things aren't really fractions. Why can we just like multiply both sides by dx? Oh, what the hell does that yes. mean? Yes, I used to be really pissed off about this. Right. <laughs> I remember the feeling of frustration. Like, we, we surely we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> You're like, yeah. So the dx's cancel out. Like, how on earth do dx's cancel out? Like, come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so th- yeah, there's like a bunch of hand waving to try and like you know. <laughs> It's sort of like Jedi mind trick of like, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. The, the teacher kind of waves that over you when you ask like... And then the DX would disappear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so they kind of do that. But like, you know, if you do want to understand it more deeply, your choices are, okay, do this in my free time. And yeah, maybe you're that into it and you'll do it in your free time. Uh, it'll require you learning a bunch of stuff. Or like try and get the teacher to sort of explain this to the whole class. The teacher has their own priorities they have a curriculum they need to teach. They have like deadlines they have to meet. They have a family a, to go home to. They've got a family to go home to. <laughs> uh, all that kind of stuff. And so just by the whole setup of the system, you know, through no, no one's fault in the classroom, it's kind of hard to actually get to the bottom of that. On that note, when, when we were learning differentiation and doing the whole dy by dx, that was when I started writing a y without the, the, the hook on the end of it. And I felt so cool because I'd be writing dy and sort of, it like it like feels really cool writing a Y without doing the the hook. So you got like D Y and slash D X, and it fe- and you, you feel like an absolute legend. D Y. Oh, okay. Just y as in like a as in a flipped a, mu, like mu but flipped. <laughs> mu but flipped exactly. Right, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> except without the extra little hook. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I understand yeah. what you mean. Um. And now and and that that is now how, how I write my Y's, and it's like it's kind oh, of okay. Cool. Nice. Yes. Well done, you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just bringing this conversation down to a level that I can I can understand. No, that's great. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Nabil says that the the meta question, uh, sorry, the the meta lesson that you learn in school is that you should is that you can't really question things too deeply because you'll fall behind, and you just have to learn the algorithm, plug in the numbers, and pass your exams. Speed is of the essence. Uh, and so he says that school kind of kills the will to understanding in people. Uh, and his advice is when you're trying to understand something, go slowly, just go really slow spend a lot of time thinking about the thing before like you start getting into the meat of it like start building up your own sort of mental model for the thing in your head before you read a textbook and someone tells you the mental model or whatever um and this starts to touch on one of my favorite theories constructionism have we talked about this on the podcast do you mean the stumbling around in a a maze and then you turn the flashlight on yeah 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 um all right Uh, I i don't think we've called it constructionism before constructivism constructionism it's constructionism it's it sounds related, very fancy because it's, it's, it's got ism at the end of it so it must be legit right okay i think this is a good time to get into it uh basically you sure it's like quarter past midnight <laughs> <laughs> this is fine man okay fine <laughs> it's fine man <laughs> <laughs> very good uh all right i'm just going to bring up my blog post so i did a about a year ago a year and a few months ago i did a a talk at a conference uh, about constructionism and my uh my vision for the future of learning i was the thought leader back in the day um and the the concept behind okay i I think i think the mental model most of us have in our heads of how people learn things and how things are taught is uh is that you know people are sort of empty vessels that are ready to be filled with knowledge and in a classroom every student is like a an empty little vase and the teacher is like pouring the knowledge into into all of their vases and then they understand something right is that is that roughly like the mental model that you probably had growing up yeah right so this is um the people who've thought about this um they call this instructionism uh and the fo- the focus in in this approach is is on the teaching 
uh, it's on trying to like instruct the students and like fill their vessels better. Uh, and, and it's the idea that like, you know, if you fill these vessels in the right way by the right teacher at the right time, then like the student will have understood something or learned something. Um, and we talk about knowledge as being something that's like passed down from gen- through the generations, like transmitted from one person to the other, as if like I have this thing and I can like throw it, throw it to you. And now you've got this thing and like it passes. This is, isn't really how it works. Uh, I think a better, a better sort of framework or mental model to think about this is that we don't learn something through transmission. We learn something by reconstruction. We don't like copy paste knowledge from the teacher's head into our own. Uh, instead, we have to like reconstruct the knowledge from the ground up in our own way, in our own heads, for us to actually understand something. And this is, this is where constructionism comes from. You're sort of reconstructing this thing. Um, and there's a metaphor which I think is pretty good. I came up with. Um, I'll just I'll just read my read an excerpt from my blog post. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, I call this the dark room metaphor. Dark room is a, a game we used to play. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I haven't thought about that in years. <laughs> Great game. All right. Oh mate, the, the, those are like the best ever. You, you'd be like hang, having a session. Someone would be like, "Let's play dark room." They, that like, feeling. Oh, like the, the feeling of euphoria when someone suggests dark room. I get that feeling now when someone suggests articulate and someone other than me. I'm like, yes, lads, here we go. Nice. All right. So I'll just read an excerpt from my blog post. Learning something new is like exploring a room. You don't really know anything to begin with, so the room is pitch black. You slowly walk through, fumbling around. You bump into things. You trip over things. You're not sure exactly what the things are, but you can feel out their shapes. You slowly build up a map of the room in your head. Eventually, you find the light switch and turn it on and everything comes together. It all makes sense. That's one way to find out what's in the room. Another way is for someone to take a picture of what's inside and just show you. On the face of it, this accomplishes the same thing. Much faster, you get to know what's in the room. But in reality, this understanding is much more brittle. Chances are, if someone showed you a picture of the same room from a different angle, for example, you wouldn't recognize it. Uh, and this is one way to think about constructionism. By exploring the room on your own, you build up your own sort of 3D model of it in your head, and you can freely manipulate this model as you require. Whereas if all you've seen is a picture, and this is what instructionism is close to, this is what the, the sort of empty vessel framework is close to, uh, if all you've seen is a picture, you can't actually use that knowledge in the same way. Uh, and so one of the big kind of principles uh, of constructionism, uh, a guy called Seymour Papert was really big on this, visionary. Uh, he thinks that it's really important to learn through making. Uh, and one of the ideas is that learning happens best through experience and actually sort of doing or making something. Uh, it's better to explore the room, in my metaphor, because you're actively engaged in the experience and so you're sort of developing your own mental model of it. Uh, and so... Yeah, there's various like I'll give, I'll give this example. This this is a this is a cute example. Papert uh, developed a computer program called Logo. I think we had this on the school computers, mm, but we didn't we did, use yeah. it very much. Basically, Logo is an educational programming language that lets you program a turtle on the screen to draw out whatever path you want. And so you can like program this turtle to move in a circle, and then it will have drawn a circle, and you will have like programmed the circle on the screen, right? And so it's often taught as part of like maths and computing courses at school, and um, Seymour Papert, who invented this thing, he once got a letter from a girl in Costa Rica who used Logo to draw a picture of a bird, and she sent him a photo of it. Uh, it clearly meant something to her since she went through the trouble of sending it to America from Costa Rica. Uh, now, if you'd asked this girl what she was doing, she probably wouldn't have said, I'm programming a computer. And she also wouldn't have said, I'm doing mathematics. She would have said something like, oh, I'm making a bird, or I'm making a picture to send to America. 
But if you look at what this girl was actually doing, she was you know, very much doing mathematics and programming and that kind of stuff. Um, but sort of in, in this sort of constructionist approach, it's, uh, you know, you're kind of creating something that's meaningful for you. Um, and so, yeah, to kind of really understand something, you should try and sort of make something oh, out of it. Nice. I'm going to start using this when, when people are like, how do I learn to code? Right. I'm going exactly. to be like, take a constructionist, <laughs> a constructionist approach yeah. and make your own website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in the process of doing so, you'll learn how to code. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that learning should be like, you should learn in a personal way and the experience should be personal to each learner. Now, like the girl drew a bird because she wanted to draw a bird. It was like meaningful to her for some reason. Uh, and so the underlying mental model that she developed while doing this will have a certain, you know, will be imbued with a certain meaning and significance. If every student in the class was forced to draw like the same bird, most of them would probably see it as like, oh, why do I have to draw a bird? Fine, I'll do some maths. Fine, okay. Whereas if you can sort of draw whatever you want, then you're going to be much more engaged. You're actually going to sort of develop a different kind of understanding. Uh, and this is, this is another thing that, this, is another, this touches on a concept that I've seen crop up in a few different places in a few different kind of theories of kind of abstract things in general, which is that I feel like the, the default model for how our brains work is that we have, like the, we have like the intellectual side and the emotional side. We have like the thinking part and then the feeling part. Uh, when actually these two things are like very much intertwined and like having, you know, emotional associations are like, you know, sort of fairly central to how we actually understand things and our representations of things in our heads. And so this thing of like feeling and thinking is like completely separate things, not really the case. And again, in this case, like the girl drew the bird because it was meaningful to her. There's some like emotional significance there and that, that sort of helps the learning. Yeah, I think... This constructionism stuff is really, really cool. Um, I think about it a fair bit in the context of, again, music theory, which is one of those kind of, I feel like it's 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 sort of like maths in that a lot of the things are very, very arbitrary. And we all, we all have some level of intuitive understanding of what sounds good and what doesn't sound right. right. Um, and what people like John Mayer uh, famously do, so like he, he actually does a lot of like Instagram lives and stuff where he just kind of gives impromptu guitar lessons. Yeah. And his, his spiel is always that, look, don't, don't worry about music theory. Create your own music theory. You know, yeah. Try and play the songs that you're hearing on the radio. Try and make your own songs. And in doing so, you will build up, you will construct your own mental model of music theory. And then you won't have to sit down and I want to learn music theory. You'll just understand that, okay, these are the notes that work nicely together. Yeah. And then if you want to go into music theory, then you'll find, oh, people have actually thought about this for a long time, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but you'll have your own construction of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what I go back to every time I think, hey, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to write a song someday and I've got some ideas for songs I'd like to write. But before doing so, I think I need to learn music theory. And then I fall into that trap that everyone who messages me being like, Ali, I need to learn how to code. How do I do it? It's like, look, the answer is you just make your own stuff and it'll happen by default. <laughs> yeah. And I, I need to take my own advice on that front. Yeah. Yeah, this touches on another blog post of mine about uh, exploration versus something else. Do you remember how I framed yeah, it? Exploration versus insights? No, exploration uh, let versus... Me, let me find it. Learn by exploration, then by theory. So I think I, I, wrote, this, I wrote this a couple of months before, the, uh, before I did sort of the deep dive into this constructionism stuff. And partly why I wanted to give that so, talk. That's a trademark term. Sorry? That's a, a trademark term. Deep dive. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> Right, for those of you who don't know, Deep Dive is a series of YouTube interviews that Ali does. Is that right? Speaking of, if anyone's listening to this, I, f I feel like I want a better name for the Deep Dive. I really want to call it Intercourse, which 
used to be the name of what, what you know i think in like october 2018 when I, I was thinking hey i want to start a podcast i made a video announcing that it was going to be called intercourse and i registered the domain name intercourse.fm and i thought it was really freaking clever it's one of the most proud moments of my life and i remember messaging my girlfriend at the time being like hey this is like the best thing ever i'm gonna make a podcast <laughs> called intercourse <laughs> and she was like uh okay um, but 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 I I I I still have like four pages worth of WhatsApp screenshots where I was like you know so excited about this idea and everyone just absolutely shot it down saying this is a terrible name I had like sort of angry emails from teachers being like look I love your YouTube videos but there's no way I'm you know I work in a private school the parents would complain if I recommend to the 13 year old girls a podcast called Intercourse and I was like yeah. fine um, <laughs> I still think it's a great name but I feel like I want a better name than deep dive for like sort of these long form podcast style interviews that I do on my YouTube channel. Sorry, I'm completely derailing your chat about learning theory. But so if anyone has any names, do tweet, tweet them in at N overthinking or send us an email at hi at not overthinking.com. We'll, we'll keep a lookout. Nice. Well, what were we talking about before I, thank, I you, thank you for bearing with us for the ad break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was saying that, uh, yeah, I sort of uh, wrote about this, this, the thing you mentioned about like, you know, figure stuff out on your own before you decide to like try and learn the theory. Uh, I wrote a blog post called Learn by Exploration, Then by Theory. Sorry, guys, we're still in the ad break here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel like that's what I can do in the meme. <laughs> you know, the meme where it's like when your friends are laughing in the group chat and you're waiting for them to settle down. <laughs> oh, all right. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he Sri Lankan? He, he looks Sri Lankan. Okay, right. I was thinking of him as Sri Lankan dude at the podium. Okay, nice. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to post a link to that in the show notes as well. That's going to be fun for you. Uh, yeah, so the reason I ended up doing that deep dive on constructionism was because it was something I was already thinking a lot about and sort of started to kind of write about this stuff a bit. And then I hit up my friend who's a big, uh, big education guy, <laughs> big educator. I was like, hey, man, I've been thinking about this stuff. What do you, what do you reckon? He was like, yeah, it's been done before. It's called constructionism. <laughs> Read these things. <laughs> you were like, no. That was cool. No, it's but, nice. but, but, but that was you being a constructionist. Exactly. That was precisely it. Uh, and the example I give uh, in the, in the pre-constructionism post is that like, you know, I'd been, I'd been sort of blogging for a few months. I'd written a bunch of stuff. And maybe like six or seven months into it, I decided to pick up a book about how to write better. And that book was like mind blowing because these concepts were already things that I sort of started to think about. I sort of started to build up my own rules and my own kind of uh, mental framework for how to write well. And then you kind of read a book by someone who knows their stuff and they kind of explain their way of doing it. And a lot of that will be in line with the stuff you're already thinking. And then the new stuff you can kind of hang on to your existing sort of mental model in your head and kind of add bits on anyway i think you get the point we've talked about this for a while it's sort of like with the with a new app like notion or something you kind of play around with it first and then you watch a youtube video and you see whoa you know this is how i all use the notion that's so interesting you know i can now do all these different things with it yeah um but it's it's less impactful if you start by watching 18 tutorials and then right. you dive into it yeah, yeah, yeah dive into it first figure out figure things out as you go as you go along and then you'll appreciate the insight a little bit more yeah yeah, I feel like this stuff is also really relevant to like causal. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about this because one thing we're always thinking about is how do we make it easier for new users to get started with the product? And one silver bullet that a lot of people try and recommend is like, oh, you guys should have like a bunch of templates. Um, and, you know, lots of products do this, like Airtable, Notion, stuff that have like templates that can sort of give you inspiration for things. The thing about templates is that it's kind of like learning the theory, 
before you've actually done the thing. Like you can look at a template in Notion or in Causal or in Rome, and it can be some like, you know, really hardcore template that has like loads of fancy features and does some cool stuff. But if that is your first entry into the product, uh, it's actually not that useful. It's too overwhelming. You don't understand how and why the person who built the template got to that point where they made those decisions and stuff. Uh, And so I'm actually kind of skeptical of the templates approach for horizontal productivity tools. I think it's good for like giving people an idea of what they could use it for. For example, oh, we can use causal for, you know, e-commerce financial model. It's good to like plant that seed in your head, but still the best way to get started is to start off with a black. Well, the first, the best way is to do our onboarding and then start off with a blank model, play around a bit. Once you kind of have constructed the concepts in your head, then check out a template and you'll be like, whoa, okay, that's why they're doing this kind of formula and stuff like that. I think this is partly why I always feel a little twinge of slight annoyance whenever I've done a YouTube video about how I use Notion in one way or another. Yeah. And people in the comments are like, where's the template Where's for the template for it? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I've literally, come on, come on, man. This is a table. You can tell that it's a table. You can tell it's got three columns. Yeah make your own freaking table like why, why do you need a template link like who cares um but i equally equally I, I can appreciate the desire for a template yeah so look i i feel the same way about templates i'm generally skeptical of them i have found myself wanting templates recently for certain things um mostly has it been notion maybe it's been notion maybe it's been rome or something but i think what a template can do i think templates are a bad way to understand the concepts of a product but templates are a are a good way to sorry that's me um kind of see how other people are using the thing no no, once you've understood it a little bit no no it's it's a bad way to understand the concepts but it's a it's a good way to get the domain knowledge so for example we recently set up a crm a customer relationship management tool Uh, a causal so we can track you know who are current customers who are people that we're talking to that we hope will become customers uh and then you can kind of yeah let's see various data relate to your customers right and there are, you know, people have been using CRMs for quite a while, a couple of decades probably. There are a set of best practices and the right way of doing things when you're setting up a CRM. You know, like, you know, you should structure your tables in this way and you should, you know, have these fields on each user and stuff like that, right? And so if I'm new to like the whole CRM thing, there's two things I need to learn. First, I need to learn the tool that I'm using. We use a tool called Atio. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, very early stage startup uh, here in London, for a very nice tool we use a tool called atio and so to like learn the ins and outs of atio you really kind of have to play around with it yourself but then you're still faced with a question of like what's the right way to set up a crm i don't know that much about like sales and stuff so i don't know what that is now if at that point someone can show me a template then like i've understood how to use the tool but the template is like the domain knowledge about sales and crms that i just don't have Do you, does that make sense yeah that makes sense so i think templates are useful for that um, and similarly, like even with calls, we get some people coming up, you know, messaging us and saying like, Hey, you know, I run this business. I don't know how to set up a financial model. Can you help me? And I think the templates are good in that sense is because like they have the domain knowledge about like the, the right way to set up a, a model, but the person still needs to kind of play around with causal themselves to understand causal the tool. Nice. Have we finished our ad break now? <laughs> <laughs> nice. This was a long one. Yeah. We've got to make sure Skillshare are okay with this. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay cool uh the next part in nabil's post is ah is that it's it's very useful to get good at noticing confusion in yourself to kind of help you understand when you actually understand something or when you're like kidding yourself uh there's a 
an online forum called Less Wrong that has a series of blog posts about various abstract things. Uh, and Nabil recommends reading that. Uh, and uh, there are a few questions that he thinks it's worth asking yourself uh, when, you, when you're trying to think about whether you understand something. Uh, you should ask yourself, but what exactly is X? What is it? Maybe that's useful. <laughs> uh, next is, why must X be true? Why does this have to be the case? What is the single fundamental reason why this thing is true? This is this is something I I, I find myself doing a lot. When I was like trying to learn the account, sort of basics of accounting, I was trying to get at like this idea of like, why did people arrive at this format of a cash flow statement and a balance sheet and an income statement? You know, um, you know why why must this be the way things are done? Uh, like, what is the like fundamental reason that motivated this thing? And this was this was what I was trying to ask my friends who allegedly knew about this stuff. Um, and I found that most of them weren't terribly helpful on this front. Um, thankfully, none of them listened to the podcast, so we're good. Uh, and then the final question he says that you should ask people is, do I really believe that this is true deep down? Would I bet a large amount of money on it with a friend? Uh, and if you find yourself saying, nah, probably not, you probably don't understand the thing. Uh, right. The next and final part... Yeah, final part. Thank goodness there. for that. Uh, this is really good. This is great, man. All right. So the, Nabil mentions two parables. Uh, oh, I love parables. I'll read out the second one. The second one is a passage from a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, <laughs> classic book. A classic sort of... <laughs> classic book. productivity uh, sort of thinking mindfulness type book. Yeah, it yeah. feels like it's one of those books that people like to say they've read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've, I've heard about it many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like finite infinite games <laughs> oh god oh, okay i'm gonna read out the passage he'd been having trouble with students who had nothing to say at first he thought it was laziness but later it became apparent that it wasn't they just couldn't think of anything to say one of them a girl with strong lens glasses wanted to write a 500 word essay about the united states he was used to the sinking feeling that comes from statements like this and suggested without disparagement that she narrow it down to just bozeman i imagine that's a person or a place is a place so i think what's going on here is there's some kind of teacher writing teacher maybe english teacher or something student wants to write 500 words about something she suggests that she writes it about the united states the teacher kind of internally face palms and suggests that she should narrow it down to a more focused topic like just one place called bozeman right and when the paper came due she didn't have it and was quite upset she had tried and tried but she just couldn't think of anything to say uh, he had already discussed with her previous instructors, and they'd confirmed his impressions of her. She was very serious, very disciplined, and very hardworking, but extremely dull. Not a spark of creativity in her anywhere. Her eyes behind the thick lens glasses were the eyes of a drudge. She wasn't bluffing him, she really couldn't think of anything to say, and she was upset by her inability to do as she was told. It just stumped him. Now he couldn't think of anything to say. A silence occurred, and then a peculiar answer. Narrow it down to the main street of Bozeman. It was a stroke of insight. Uh, so he's telling her to like focus even deeper on like the topic and write about that instead. So a single street in this town or city or whatever. Right? Uh, she nodded dutifully and went out. But just before her next class, she came back in real distress, tears this time, distress that had obviously been there a long time. She still couldn't think of anything to say and couldn't understand why. If she couldn't think of anything about all of Bozeman, she should be able to think about something about just one street. <coughs> Sorry. My mouth's getting very dry after all this talking. He was very furious. You're not looking, he said. A memory came back of his own dismissal from university for having too much to say. For every fact, there is an, inf an infinity of hypotheses. The more you look, the more you see. She really wasn't looking, and yet somehow she didn't understand this. 
He told her angrily, narrow it down to the front of one building on the main street of Bozeman, the opera house. Start with the upper left-hand brick. Her eyes behind the thick lens glasses opened wide. She came in the next class, a puzzled look, and handed him a 5,000-word essay on the front of the opera house on the main street of Bozeman in Montana. Uh, I sat in the hamburger stand across the street, she said, and started writing about the first brick and the second brick. And then by the third brick, it all started to come and I couldn't stop. They thought I was crazy and they kept kidding me, but here it is, here it all is, I don't understand it. Neither did he, but on long walks through the streets of town, he thought about it and concluded she was evidently stopped with the same kind of blockage that had paralyzed him on his first day of teaching. This is really good. She was blocked because she was trying to repeat in her writing things that she had already heard, just as on the first day he had tried to repeat things he had already decided to say. She couldn't think of anything to write about Bozeman because she couldn't recall anything she had heard worth repeating about Bozeman. Uh, She was strangely unaware that she could look and see freshly for herself, as she wrote, without primary regard for what had been said before. The narrowing down to one brick destroyed the blockage because it was so obvious she had to do some original and direct seeing. Uh, And Nabil says, uh, the point of both these parables is that nothing beats direct experience. Get the data yourself. Uh, You... Uh, He mentions that uh, in trying to understand the coronavirus, he wanted to analyze the coronavirus genome directly. Uh, He kind of works in sort of biology tech stuff. Um, You develop some basis in reality by getting some firsthand data and and reasoning up from there versus starting with someone else's lossy compression of a messy evolving phenomenon and then wondering why events keep surprising you. Um, Yeah, this is uh, classic constructionism stuff. Uh, Ah, this is good. I think this is really true. People who have not experienced the thing are unlikely to be generating truth. More likely, they're resurfacing cached thoughts and narratives. Reading popular science books or news articles is not a substitute for understanding and may make you stupider by filling your mind with narratives and stories that don't represent your own synthesis of of, of the thing. Um, And even if you can't experience the thing directly, try going for information-dense sources with high amounts of detail and facts and then reason up from those facts. On foreign policy, read books published by university presses, not The Atlantic or The Economist. You can read those afterwards after you've developed your own model of the thing yourself. uh, And then you you sort of fit the narratives in The Economist uh, into your existing models. Um, And finally, the the parable about the bricks tells us that understanding is not a binary yes or no. It has layers of depth. Uh, Early on the post, Nabil mentioned a friend, math friend. He says, my friend understood Pythagoras' theorem far more deeply than I did. He could prove it six different ways and has simply thought about it for longer um, <coughs> and he says that the simplest things can reward close study. Uh, one example is uh, a mathematician called Kolmogorov uh, did a bunch of stuff. Uh, and you'd expect that, okay, a great mathematician like Kolmogorov would be writing about some very complicated piece of mathematics. Um, but he actually spent quite a while just writing about the equal sign, about why the equal sign is a good piece of notation, what its deficiencies were, stuff like this, um, and discussing like in detail the equal sign rather than anything like complex in maths. Uh, and he closes with some advice. Uh, apparently the photographer Robert Kappa advised beginning photographers, if your pictures aren't good enough, then you're not close enough. Uh, apparently this is good fiction writing as well. Uh, it's also good advice for understanding things. Nabil says, when in doubt, go closer. I think that's pretty good. I think this thing about like, you know, so much of what we do is just regurgitating things that we've seen other people say and that we've read from other people mm. rather than like coming up with stuff ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've been thinking about this in the context of Twitter. 
Yeah. And I find that sort of as you as you were saying that thing about kind of the orig- original thought, I was I was thinking that yeah, I feel like a lot of any time I I feel stuck in my writing or something, it's because I'm trying to figure out you know what have I heard on the grapevine that I can then repurpose in my own way and and, and stuff. Yeah. And when I when I need to, uh, I I feel like. One way that I get myself into the a, a more original mindset is ironically by imagining that I'm not myself. I, I actually imagine that I am our mutual friend Visa on Twitter and I'm <laughs> coming up with some kind of tweet thread insight and thinking, okay, I've now given myself permission to sort of just kind of opine on a, a few things that I'm just <laughs> randomly coming up with and just sort of making connections with stuff I randomly see in the world. And that's fine because I, I, I'm not actually being me. I'm pretending to be someone else while doing it. Oh, and then nice. I think, oh. Okay, if I, if I practice this enough, <laughs> yeah, what would Visa do? Exactly, then that'll be more of the sort of thing that I would do. Nice, um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So why don't you see it as like part of your identity to be able to come up with stuff on your own? Why do you have to channel a Singaporean dude <laughs> whose tweets you've read in order to do this? <laughs> I think it's I think it's just a, another facet of imposter syndrome. Is the idea that who, who am I to come up with original insights on anything? I don't know anything. I mean, all I do is repurp- repurpose content from other people. Right. Um, and yet, well, I find that only on occasions where I do come up with, with stuff like the write-off principle or the resonance calendar or these other sort of random phrases that I've, I've tried to coin. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it seems to really resonate with people. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, I've, I've, I've noticed that on Twitter as well recently, like... Once you hit a certain size following and you you can pretty much tweet anything and you know that at least a few dozen people are going to like it. Yeah. And, it, and you know, by hitting the like, I, I, I suppose some subset of those will just kind of like anything I post just yep. reflexively. Yep. But for the rest of them, they're going to read that and think, okay, yeah, hit the like button. And that is very, very liberating in a way in that... Wait, it, liberating? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It, okay. It, it, it's, it's liberating because it means that my ideas have value beyond just in my own head. Ah, Okay. And therefore, it makes me more comfortable to experiment with ideas, with more ideas just from my own head, and sort of be be more okay with putting them put, putting them out into the world. That's an in, that that was an interesting turn down the path. Am, am I am I right in saying that you feel more comfortable tweeting random stuff because you know you'll definitely get like a few likes, and so you're not like completely insane, probably. Yeah, I thought that was weird because I thought what you were actually going to say, <laughs> which is what I've been trying to hammer into your head for quite a while now, <laughs> is that you know. Well, I I know there's always going to be people who like my tweets. And so really, that's not a reasonable barometer for anything. I need my own internal compass for like, what's valuable, what's meaningful, what's interesting. I need to live by that rather than living by, you know, what will get likes or whatever, right? I still think I'm at the point, at least when it comes to Twitter, where uh, I'm at the point where I need to put in the reps. And I don't, I'm, I'm at the point where I need to worry about quantity rather than quality. I think when it comes to when it comes to stuff like YouTube videos, I for for those I now have an internal barometer for what I think is good, which partly which partly is somewhat correlated with the external barometer of what the audience thinks is good. Okay, because ultimately this is like a you know an audience sure. audience serving platform. Yeah. But I think when it comes to Twitter and when it comes to kind of original writing, I'm still in the sort of I will do whatever life hacks that I can get to sort of make myself more comfortable with doing the thing. Uh, I guess that's fair. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. But I think this was also the underlying... So I remember a few episodes ago, I had a bit of a rant at the end of the episode against you. Legibility. F- about about like legibility and about like not reading any real books or whatever. Um, I think this came across as an angry rant. Mimi actually said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I seemed weirdly angry at you wow. <laughs> during that. <laughs> it, was, it was like close-up magic, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But I was basically trying to get at this thing of like, yeah, basically all this stuff. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get at of like... 
you seem to think, yeah, you see, you seem to think it's like quite meaningful to kind of read some, you know, read some stuff, which is itself a, a third derivative of yeah. something. And then you, you, you like add your own derivative on top of that yeah. rather than, you know, thinking about going to you know, the primary source in some way and constructing your, your own entire thing yourself. I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna give you a quote from a Nobel Prize winner here. Oh jeez, which is um, thinking is hard and people can't be bothered to think. <laughs> oh, what's the quote from later from from in, from this very post? Uh, it's the 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 will to think. People don't have the will to think. Uh, I really wish I had it at my fingertips because then that would that uh, th- that was the point that I was making. What's the quote? Oh, the will to think. The essential element for successful work in any field is the will to think. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah. What do you mean? I'm saying I'm saying I don't have the will to think. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that was which my was frustration. The, yeah, which was the point I was making in the legibility run to that. Like, man, I have a finite amount of time. I've got the national curriculum that I need to sort out in my <laughs> on, on my YouTube channel. Good old Govi is telling me what I'm allowed to uh, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to make videos about. Therefore, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't I don't care about finding the actual proof of the chain rule. I am more than happy to sort of parrot the the sort of fake version of the chain rule proof. In the hope that kind of in the future, I, I would like to explore these areas in more depth at some point when, when I have a bit more time on my hands. So I had some thoughts about that conversation afterwards. And I think that what you're, I think your framing of it is actually kind of not really true. You're framing it as if, okay, option A is I read some fourth derivative book, come up with my fifth derivative take on it and make a YouTube video about that. Yeah. And then write that in an email newsletter the following week. Yeah. Um, you're saying that's option A. Yeah. And option B is go into a cave like a hermit, study st- study the <laughs> the sacred scrolls <laughs> for a year or something, and then emerge and like, you know, start writing my <laughs> my manifesto on life. Right? You're almost framing it as if those are the two options. No, I'm saying I'm saying there's a spectrum. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously a spectrum. Yeah. But like I feel like the, the option B is a lot, you know, I think your audience will value your thoughts on stuff in general, you know? And so if you are, you know, if, if you're reading the sacred scrolls and maybe it takes you, you know, a couple of weeks or something to read the sacred scrolls about a particular topic and start like forming your own thoughts and your own take on it, you know, maybe it takes you a couple of weeks and, you know, fine, you could have read two Tim Ferriss books in that time uh, and, and made content about it. I'm saying it's not the difference between you have to take a break from YouTube for six months to actually learn some stuff versus you keep making videos. It's really just like, you know, just spend a a bit more time on something and come up with your own stuff and there'll be plenty of content to produce about it. And dare I say, people will probably find that a lot more interesting than, you know, they'll find Ali Abdal's first derivative take on something a lot more interesting than Ali Abdal's fifth derivative take on something. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Um, That's along the lines of what I've been thinking as well. The reason I have been... So for a a fair amount of productivity stuff, I, I feel like I'm coming up with sort of first or second derivatives as opposed to fifth derivatives of things. Okay, nice. For stuff that I'm less familiar with, like, for example, if I were to do a video on nutri- nutrition or fitness and stuff, yes, I could go down to the original research and, come up, try, and try and come up with the first derivative thing of it, but there is so much low-hanging fruit that I've yet to explore. That's a fair point, yeah. It makes a lot of sense to just do the fifth derivative stuff while it's there. Right. Um, and partly, partly one of the things I value about this podcast is that it encourages me to... And uh, who, 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 who was who was who was telling I was telling you about this? I think the the way I kind of think of it is you know that 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 discussion we have each week. Like, all right, what, what's the topic for the week? Yeah, 
I sort of see it almost as an intellectual arms race with you, sort of being sort of, where you're coming up with lots of these topics. Right. And therefore, I need to sort of be on top of my game of sort of reading outside right. the things that I would I'm normally just like read. thinking about stuff, basically. Think, thinking about stuff or, yeah. or for me reading about stuff um, beyond, beyond what I would normally do to, to encourage me just to, just to get a bit more diverse perspective, which is where kind of Elephant in the Brain came up and then sort of the righteous mind based off of that. Um, where was I going with this? Uh, and so, yeah, it's 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 a direction that I do want to head, and I think there is definitely value in sort of getting first derivative stuff more. But nice, there is always the balance of like, well, we've got we've got a sponsored videos coming out next week. Let me pick the low hanging fruit. Well, you know, what I I have to churn out this video in the next hour. Yeah, sure, fine. So, all I'm saying is that the, but you should shift the balance a little bit. I agree. Nice. So that actually brings us to the end of the post. <laughs> I don't know how long we've been recording. I don't know if these three different devices are even still recording at this point. Um. Right, right, that's the post. We'll link to it. It's great stuff. Uh, I'll link to my various blog posts associated uh, related to this thing. Uh, cool. To wrap up, a few things. We actually got a lot of messages after the last week's episode. On the Envy episode. Oh, yeah. So I think people really liked that. I think it really resonated with people. Okay. And I think there was a lot of like, it was like an original conversation between you and me. And it was like a raw and real conversation. Mm. And I think that came across. And so I think that was really good. I think people loved it. And and it was mostly a book discussion. Sorry? It was mostly a book discussion, but then we really went deep into the Envy yeah, stuff. We did, yeah, I think we went deep into like personal experiences of the Envy stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think I'm glad that resonated. I like a bunch of people said like, this is your best episode so far and stuff like that. So that's cool. Um, and then the episode before that was where we were trying to like convince people to become professional golf players, aka have an online uh, presence. Uh, and it seems like I got a lot of messages from people saying that, oh man, like I'm finally over the edge. How do I, how do I start a blog? That kind of thing. Easiest way to start a blog is on Substack, substack.com. We'll link to it below. Um, but uh, yeah, it feels like that that might have actually done something. But as we were talking about in the car, the real test is like, it's great that lots of people are starting. Uh, yeah, on like in the journeys. last week, I know sort of five, five different medics that I know in various, various sources who have all started YouTube channels yeah. within the same two-week period. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's great. Like that has to be the first yeah. step. But the real, the real test is how many people are still going to be doing this, you know, three months, six months, 12 months from now and like consistently doing it. And that, that's really the name of the game. And we'll refer you to epi- our episode number three about consistency for that one, which I think is also a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. Uh, let's read a review. Oh, we had a negative review. We had the first negative review in many, many, many months. Uh, I worry that if we read it, it will encourage more people to respond. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. God, so please don't leave negative reviews. This person gave a one-star review. Uh, in Great Britain. The review is IMO, in my opinion, materialistic and arrogant, weak core values. Oh, is that it? That's it. No. And that, that's like an interesting review, but yeah. I'd love to learn more, you know? <laughs> yeah, whoever that is, please do I mean, write in again. That's the thing. They're, not, they're probably not listening again. <laughs> Damn. Um, yes, I don't know what episode they're talking about. I don't know why they feel that way. I'd be very curious to know. Uh, if any listeners feel we are materialistic and arrogant and have weak core values, I'd love to hear why. Um, but yeah, that was the the review for this week. Do you have any insights of the week? One thing I've been thinking about, kind of, uh, sort of, just 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 along this sort of same theme of constructivism, is to what extent is it useful to take a cursory look, to take a cursory look at the the canon of a particular field <laughs> before worrying about doing original thinking? What do you mean? As in. For example, let's say you want to get into entrepreneurship. Yeah. You want to do your own startup. Yeah. 
I feel like it probably makes better sense to speed read the four hour work week and the lean startup and like a few other sort of canonical books. On yeah, hundred percent. Before, rather than doing a Ramanujan and sort of <laughs> you know rediscovering Pythagoras from the ground up. Right. Yeah. But I also wonder what value there is in doing a Ramanujan and whether we're actually missing insides by everyone singing from the same hinge from the same canonical texts. Uh, that's just something I've been thinking about. But we can we can talk about it another time. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a few thoughts on this. Uh, the thoughts are roughly that uh, a lot of the stuff that we're kind of doing with causal is like, you know, th- there is like a playbook that you're supposed to follow called the Lean Startup. And we've tried to like follow that. Um, but in actually like doing the thing, we've come to appreciate sort of why and how some of those things are useful and also why and how some of those things aren't applicable to us in our opinion and stuff like that um but yeah we'll, we'll talk about it another time yeah definitely right thanks everyone for listening we'll see you next week that's it for this week thank you for listening if you like this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts or on the apple podcast website if you're not using an iphone there's a link in the show notes if you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum question or just anything that we could discuss yeah if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. if you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly that's fine as well tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.